On this episode, I speak with Roy Christian, CEO of Liquid Sports Labs in Rochester, New York. We talk about his start in baseball sports performance and analytics, how he maintains a sense of balance while being an entrepreneur, and how he's been able to help win a unified Pro-Am eSports championship using Liquid Sports Analytics. You can find Liquid Sports Lab at liquidsportslab.com and on your favorite social media sites by searching for Liquid Sports Lab. You can also follow Caleb versus Self on Instagram, or you can reach out at calebversusself at gmail.com for comments, suggestions, or any other feedback. I appreciate everything I've gotten up until this point. Please continue to reach out. Hopefully, you enjoy this particular episode with Roy. I know that I did. Baseball is something that's been brought up quite a few times by some folks that listen, so thank you guys for your suggestions. Again, I hope you enjoy. I've got with me Roy, CEO of Liquid Sports Lab. So a few of the guys sent me over the article from the U of R um, talking about your background all the way from playing ball in high school to what you're doing today. Let's get into, if you don't mind, the very beginning, right? You as a pitcher trying to get to Dartmouth, throw out your or or tour, right? Your UCL, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. And then you go through the process of recovery, Tommy John surgery. It seems that you were obviously very frustrated by the actual treatment and the process. Can you expand upon what exactly frustrated you in particular going through that whole process? Yeah. And so, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was 17 years old at the time. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I was a pretty good pitcher here in downstate New York. Um, just getting looks from, you know, nothing crazy. Wasn't, you know, going pro or anything like that, but was getting looks from good division three schools and uh, like Ivy league schools, Patriot league schools. Um, and yeah, I tore my UCL and all of a sudden, you know, division one, even the possibility of division one was, you know, off the table for me. So I ended up missing my entire senior year, my entire freshman year, um, just the timing of the injury, honestly. And uh, what ended up happening is coming back in my rehab, um, you know, I was lucky enough to attend the U of R, kind of get a quantitative education that kind of always asked me to ask why. And uh, in asking why, uh, a lot of times the answers I got, some of them were great. You know, I had a great physical therapist staff that was able to answer a lot of the questions I had. But from just like a, like a, like a you know, a Google standpoint, from a, a generic standpoint, um, I, it was really tough for people to answer the question as to why do we come back from Tommy John surgery the way we do? And uh, specifically, there was an amount of throws. It was, you know, uh, 60 throws at 120 feet. Um, and I was like, okay, this seems like a very arbitrary number. Uh, you know, what happens at 121 feet? Does my arm fall off? What happens at 125 feet? Well, so when we throw a projectile, you know, the laws of projectile motion tell us that a ball doesn't just stop and drop at the end of its flight. It continues over an arc. So 120 feet isn't even necessarily 120 feet because I didn't have a throwing partner there it would, you know, continue past that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I asked, you know, I asked my, my rehabilitation team, they did a great job, um, but I didn't get the answers I want, not because of them, but just because of what I felt back were like withholdings of, of traditional medicine, meaning, and not to say no sounds super Joe Rogan-y on this podcast, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just um, a lot of the stuff that we were using to rehab arms was from like 50, 60 years ago. And maybe they still worked, you know, maybe I was wrong, maybe they still worked, Maybe, you know, these principles were concrete principles that would never change. But in my case, I, you know, had the background where I got to say, let's test it. Let's build some sensors and let's test it. I mean, it's been 60 years, 60 years ago, Dr. James Andrews didn't have the opportunity 
to sit down and put sensors on his clients? Well, now we do. So let's find out if there's a better way to do this. And uh, lo and behold, we found uh, some stress variables that are uh, you know, more reflective of an, of an athlete returning from injury, being able to normalize stress levels instead of normalizing throws. That gives us an objective feedback where we're saying, okay, the athlete can tolerate this amount of stress. The athlete needs to reach this amount of stress. Having these baseline metrics, if somebody has, and you know, just for the simple math here, I'm, I'm saying if somebody has 65 Newton meters of torque, um, that's a variable we use in, in, in kind of gauging various torque specifically, engaging uh, the pressure, um, not so much the pressure, but just kind of like the stretch that someone can put on their medial elbow, which is right where Tommy John happens over the ulnar collateral ligament. Um, so if they were at 65 Newton meters of torque, 65 Newton meters of quote unquote stress before, mm-hmm. well, instead of just throwing an arbitrary number out there, let's start at zero Newton meters of stress and let's load bit by bit by bit by bit by bit until we know that they can tolerate what they were tolerating before. And when you and talk that, about stress, it's not yeah. like it just for folks that might be listening who aren't as familiar, you're not talking about like the stress of pitching in the world series. You're talking about the actual physical stress of tendons, ligaments, muscles, things of that nature. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I'm talking about the physical stretching of the, you know, the ulnar collateral joint, but also with specific corollary ligaments. Um, and so in doing that, now we have an objective characteristic. It's not just something we made up. It is loading stress bit by bit by bit until they can tolerate it, which even on paper makes more sense than the ways we were doing it before. So again, pretty remarkable, fascinating. And it looks like from that, and and correct me if I'm wrong, you've gotten to the point, and we'll talk about that journey a little bit, to having Liquid Sports Labs and being able to develop really a a non-arbitrary process to improve, whether it be batting, pitching, all sorts of different... um, aspects of I know particularly baseball but some other things as well how do you go from let me stress load after Tommy John surgery all the way to you know wrist angles and newtons of force and how hips are rotating things of that nature yeah so um like I said I credit a lot of it to my background which comes from the U of R predominantly in my education but also I work for you know three great companies um along the way that are also pioneers and uh, go-getters in the space themselves. Uh, I got to spend some time rehabbing at uh, Driveline Baseball, where they were really the first ones. I mean, back then it was a basically a basement, um, you know, pushing a couple, you know, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars in annual revenue. It's 2016. Now in 2021, they service almost every single MLB team. They're doing about 12 million in annual revenue, just really pushing the agenda in the sport in the terms of uh, baseball sports performance. After that, I got to spend some time at uh, Epic Sports Biomechanics. Uh, I got to work with uh, accident engineers and biomechanical reconstruction engineers that use some of the uh, stress levels to be able to recreate auto accidents in litigation cases. That really pushed my understanding from a holistic standpoint as well, as even though it wasn't maybe specifically related to exactly what we were trying to fine tune, it pushes your, you know, just your learning curve in so many other areas that you kind of just learn stuff on the job that you can then apply to this uh, mathematical process. And finally, I got to work for a consult- as a consultant uh, over at uh, Reboot Motion with uh, two great guys, uh, Evan Demchek, who's a partner over at Acuna Capital, one of the uh, leading fintech and hedge fund and emerging hedge funds in the, uh, in the world, who's taken, you know, the same way the finance world has taken a quantitative out- outreach and output to everything. He's kind of taken that same model 
and founded the company with uh, co-founder Jimmy Buffy, who is the senior analyst for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So just all these names and a lot of, you know, I name a lot of accolades just to kind of just show the listeners that I, you know, this isn't uh, me so much as it is the guys that uh, I've got to stand on their shoulders. Um, they've done a phenomenal job of really pushing my, you know, understanding over the last five years. And uh, that's kind of how we arrived at, uh, at today. That's a wild journey. And obviously you've still got tons more to go. When people talk about analytics and baseball, the natural refle- uh, reaction is just like, oh, you mean like Moneyball? But to me, after reading a little bit more about liquid sports, it seems to be that this is like the next level of of analytics. Like we're getting into the nitty gritty of motion as opposed to like OBP or, or any of the other stats that are typically used. For for you, and I don't even know if you could talk about this. If you can't, by all means, I'll just move on. But is there a way that for a, a player in particular, you can look at how they pitch or how they swing and be able to quantify like how many potential more wins you might get with one player over another? Yeah, so that's exactly what we do. I say this phrase a lot, mostly at conferences and presentations and sure. you know talks and stuff like that. But uh, I think Moneyball is dead. And I say that because... Moneyball gave the Oakland A's a competitive edge, you know, in the in the early in the I guess the early you know 2010s, but more specifically the late 2000s, and it gave them a great edge. But now everybody's doing it, mm-hmm. and when everybody's doing something, it no longer becomes an outlier; it becomes the benchmark. So now, if everybody's doing something, it's not really giving you a competitive edge. If you're not doing it, you've actually got a competitive loss. Mm-hmm. So. This is kind of like a new kind of money ball. It's not so much, you know, I, I'll use um, a guy like Kevin Euclid. I know you've got a lot of baseball fans on the podcast. Where, yeah. and, and for those who aren't baseball fans, who was overlooked a lot because he swang the bat funny. Um, he looked funny up there. And uh, that wasn't a quantifiable variable. He got on base. He got to first base and, you know, every other one at a very high clip. But he was overlooked because he swang funny. But the thing is, teams don't do that anymore. Now we need to, the new kind of money ball, money ball 2.0, and this next data revolution that's going to occur is actually from being able to find overlooked players that don't throw a hundred miles an hour yet. Mm. And if you look at the teams that are specifically able to do that, it's already happening. If you get a guy like Carl Edwards Jr., who is a pitcher of the Chicago Cubs, uh, signed as a, signed in the draft, uh, I think now about six years ago to the Cubs, he's about six foot three, 155 pounds. Now, now I'm not giving anything secret away, but uh, sure. if we look at the basic equation of you know force is equal to mass times acceleration, force lets us throw the ball harder. Well, in the in the you know the in the case of Carl Edwards Jr., uh, he needed some mechanical refinement. But if you can add mass at the same rate of acceleration that he was accelerating, if you can get him to 180 pounds and keep his pelvic rotation, his torso rotation, his angular velocity of his arms and wrists at the same point. Well, then in a mathematical, theoretical sense, we're creating more force. If we're creating more force, we can get these guys to throw harder. And the thing about that is you're not paying them for the pitchers that they will be. You're paying them for the pitchers that they are. So if you sign, you know, 88 mile per hour, 6'3", 155, Carl Edwards Jr. to a, you know, a small contract of, you know, $45,000 a year. As an undrafted free agent, and that's not the Carl Edwards story. I'm just, you know, yeah, yeah, kind of just putting out some some facts out there for how teams do this. Yeah, and then bring him into a biomechanical lab, spend a year or two developing him, putting on that mass so that our force equation can look better, 
so that mathematically and theoretically he can throw harder. Now, all of a sudden, you have a guy that's throwing 97 miles an hour for a fraction of the cost that you would pay someone to go throw 97 miles an hour on the open market. And that's the beauty of this new reality, which is Moneyball 2.0. That's insane to me to think that you're going to take a, you know, potentially 18, 19 year old kid and say, okay, I, here's where the value is. And I send them over to Roy at Liquid Sports Labs. And I say, Roy, what are we looking at? This is that next level of being able to play that long game, I assume, for players, right? For, for managers, for teams, for scouts. This is that next level of being able to look at trajectories for certain players. If a, I imagine, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, if a certain player just can't get around uh, pitching with a, with a certain velocity, you know, all right, this is, here's the ceiling. Right? Exactly. We can move on as a team. Let's get the next guy in. And the beautiful part about the ceiling from a financial perspective for these major league teams is, you know, if I'm paying undrafted free agent X $35,000 a year, the overhead, the risk to me is almost negligible. These are billion dollar firms that we're talking about. Right. Um, and so that's, I mean, you know, on um, it's like, uh, you know, something like I, I always go back to finance just because uh, it's kind of, you know, that's a, a lot of guys in finance like Theo Epstein and Sabermetrician, Bill James, all those types of guys have shaped the future of uh, baseball. It's the same way that we use options with this crazy upside. Um, and we, you know, sometimes guys use them to mitigate risk and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's just at the end of the day, you are creating players in your system by finding how they break down specifically. So if Carl Edwards does X, Y, Z, A, B, C exceptionally well, but he doesn't do D well at all, and I can just raise D while keeping A, B, C, X, Y, Z the exact same, well, then I've just essentially improved a player for a fraction of the cost of what it would have cost me to go get, uh, you know, we'll go get Craig Kimbrell on the open market. Go get, uh, you know, a Clayton Kershaw on the open market, a Trevor Bauer on the open market. Um, I'm creating wins without paying a lot of money. And mm-hmm. if it doesn't work, well, then, yeah, you just, it's eventually going to work. You get a big enough, significant enough sample size, eventually things click. So um, I think you're starting to see it. It's the year of the reliever, right? We saw the World Series starters go three innings and then one and one and one and one and one. Yes. And why they teams can do that is because they develop their guys specifically well. Um, it used to be, you know, think of the 1996 through 2001 Yankees, right? Mm-hmm. They had, uh, well, they had a, a number of guys. They had Mariano, they had the starter go seven innings, Mariano in the eighth, John Wetland in the ninth. And then Wetland, um, you know, they, they, he, he was traded. And then they went uh, Jabba Chamberlain, Mariano Rivera. And then they went David Robertson, Mariano Rivera. And now they have the, you know, as recently as, you know, 2016, they had Chad Green, Zach Britton, Aroldis Chapman. That model is kind of dead. Now you kind of nickel and dime your way to, uh, you know, to winning games by a developing these guys. And now you have the guys, you can develop them in such a way that the team doesn't have a predisposition to what they're seeing. So if I bring in a two seamer and a slider guy, right? That's kind of a, a predisposition. A two seamer for all you guys out there runs into a right-handed batter, a slider runs away. And I bring them in for one inning. And then I bring in a four seamer and a curveball guy, right? A, a four seamer is going to explode out of the top of the zone curveball is going to drop off the table. Well, now they can't kind of rely on this one pitch. A lot of hitting is guessing. You know, mm-hmm. if you succeed three out of 10 times, the MLB is a hitter. They build a gold statue of you and put you in the hall of fame. <laughs> right, and, right. <laughs> uh, and, and at the end of the day, that's the thing is now you can't go up there for a second at bat and say, Hey, you know what? I struck out last time, but I really got a hang on that slider. Cause that guy's not going to be in the game anymore. So by building pitchers the way you want them, 
implementing the game plan in traditional money ball that leverages statistically the greatest outcome. That is how these teams are winning games. Again, insanely wild. Um, let's move over to you starting Liquid Sports Lab. So, you know, in this article, you talked briefly about like, you know, I, I and, and you did earlier, right? You've learned a lot from these guys. You were able to see a lot from different businesses. What made you feel like, nah, I'm going to go do this on my own because either A, I can do it better or I can do it cheaper or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I think traditionally as engineers, we fall short in being able to communicate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I fall victim to it at points as well, where uh, a lot of the things we say are, you know, derivatives and statistical methods and uh, the scientific formula and arriving to conclusions through discrete mathematics and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't make sense to an athlete. And at these engineering firms I had worked for, um, I saw this disconnect between, you know, the coach and the, and the analyst, the analyst and the engineer. It's almost like a pipeline where you have engineer, analyst, coach. Okay. Optimally, what you want is our engineer writes an engineering report that can be read by the analyst that can create specific methods for the coach to implement into the player's training. Now, for example, you know, there's very few Bryson DeChambeau's out there that have a degree in, uh, in physics from Southern Methodist University. Right, um, right. <laughs> so, I mean, he's a guy that wants to read the, his physics, probably comes up with his own physics as well. The engineer's job is to engineer. Here, here's my engineering prognosis and analysis. Um, I can read this graph that tells me that the pitcher's pelvic rotation doesn't coincide optimally with his front foot hitting the ground. And we know that off of the data reserves we have. Great. That means absolutely nothing to the pitcher. I'm not going to go up to him and tell him, hey, man, I want you to optimally rotate your pelvis into front foot strike every time you throw a pitch. No, that's the hardest thing in the world to hear. I'm going to go to the analyst and say, hey, Mr. Analyst, um, player X is having you know trouble rotating his hips into front foot strike. The analyst is going to say, okay, you know we have we've had players that struggle with this in the past. This is the drill we use in order to fix that disconnection. And then now the analyst is going to go tap the coach on the shoulder and hey, and go, hey, Mr. Coach, uh, we are actually you know looking at player X. We see that our engineers from the top down are telling us he's got poor pelvic rotation to front foot strike. I am telling you to do this exercise to fix that so we can overcome that disconnect, that deficit over a long enough period of time. And the coach makes sure that the athlete is then implementing it correctly, making sure that the player isn't just going through the motions, but it's instead feeling you know, his, pelvics, his pelvis move into the proper positions, feeling his body move with the correct speed, and is actually doing the exercise right so that if we do it 10,000 times, great. We just fixed a pelvic rotation breakdown. So um, in that being said, I've, I've, a lot of engineering firms kind of ignored that analyzing part. Um, at the end of the day, in, in the entire world, if your product doesn't work, it does not matter how good the engineering was. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter if you were right, wrong, in the middle, or you know, along the spectrum of right to wrong. Um, if your product doesn't work and you don't see tangible results, then you are, you know, for, for, you know, for everyone's sake and not to pony punches, but you're a failure. It's a failure if you cannot translate to the consumer what the end goal was. And, uh, and that's why I started Liquid Sports Lab is I had the, uh, you know, the opportunities to work alongside extremely talented engineers, extremely talented ac- academicians, um, mathematicians, academics, um, extremely talented public speakers, extremely talented COOs, CFOs, all that kind of stuff. But I never had a team that I could fully orchestrate and say, hey, these three steps 
the, the engineer to the analyst, to the coach to ensure there is no like translation breakdown to ensure that we are expressing ourselves the best we can to the athlete. I've never worked at a firm that expresses it better than liquid. And I'm definitely proud of the process that we've come up with so far. And the second reason is pretty simple. I didn't own anything I made. So it was really, these things become like your babies. You stay up late at night, you know, uh, next to their significant other, staring at the ceiling instead of asking them about their day and come up with bright (laughs) ideas in the shower, run outside the shower and write them down. And then you go into work, watch your company make a lot of money with them and realize that, oh, I don't actually own this because I'm a salaried employee. So uh, I I think a lot of people would take the same route um, and they're just scared of the floor. But uh, I saw this feeling, I was young enough, you know, Young enough, I had you know great parents that also supported me in my endeavors, um, and said, you know what, I'm young enough where the ceiling right now um, is you know it looks amazing in the age of biotechnology. The floor also looks extremely scary, but why not jump? Let's see what happens. You know, um, at the end of the day, I'm going to sleep all at night knowing I gave everything my all and did it my way, um, and that's what Liquid Sports Lab is. And you started Liquid Sports Lab in 2020, but you were doing a ton of other stuff at the same time. Uh, in the article, it, it states that you're kind of backing off a little bit on on doing a whole bunch. In 2021, has that focus been almost exclusively on liquid sports? Yeah, I, uh, you know, like I said, I, I've been blessed with uh, at the University of Rochester with an extraordinary support system, uh, both physically and emotionally. I, you know, got to be the president of my fraternity. I got to be the president of various clubs and societies. Um, I was on the varsity baseball team my first two years in college. Um, I, I won a couple of awards, um, for like leadership and excellence and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, that's because of the people I had around me. Uh, once again, I hate to shout out Rochester cause I just gave them $250,000, but, uh, <laughs> sure. um, at the end of the day, like I have people around me that are just as ambitious as me and think the same way. And when I have down days can pick me up and, uh, and at the end of the day, that's, um, you know, it, it was awesome to be able to lead all these societies, but I kind of started re- realizing as liquid took off and, Liquid started, I think, three weeks ago um, last year. And uh, I started in my dorm room. And three weeks ago, so a full calendar year for, for Liquid, my intern actually reached out to me, Kobe Wolf, and he said, no, it's been a year, right? One of my interns um, said, it's been a year. And I looked around and I was in a conference room, my own conference room in my own office. Um, and one year ago, I was hitting, you know, accept on the terms and conditions of my brandly formed company from my dorm room before I went to the bar. Right. And right. so... Uh, to be able to see that ascension has been something that's super special. I mean, I, I've been really lucky that, you know, startups don't usually take off in a year and, you know, we've definitely not taken off. I don't want that to be the rhetoric, but to just kind of sit back. I mean, sometimes in tech, we don't sit back and appreciate the things that we we've built and uh, to be able to sit in my you know dusty dorm room during COVID when I couldn't see anyone and uh, start a company in theory. And then one year later to be sitting in my own conference room in a big presentation with 40 people was uh it was definitely a, an eye-opening moment for me, um, yeah. and I'm you know definitely super grateful for it. In that space, it also seems like speed is key. So yeah, you don't ever actually take the time to really reflect on what you've accomplished in whatever period of time that it's been. So as far as like the future looks for Sports Labs, uh, how do you feel about that? Where do you feel like the direction of that is headed? Uh, what and uh, that's the beauty of biotechnology is wherever the needs are. Uh, right now, I'll give a sneak peek at some of our upcoming projects. We've been diagnosing remote pipelines for athletes to be able to put sensors on their bat, go home, not just home, but go in game because obviously the season is fast approaching mm-hmm. in February, March. Be able to go in game and analyze their own swings through neural networks and artificial intelligence, um, essentially telling 
our, our consumers, hey, so you put a sensor on the end of your bat, you go and you take 10 swings. Um, you know, you had a really bad day. You went 0 for 6 with 6 strikeouts. Okay, let's see what you did wrong. We have a Bluetooth uplink that's going to uplink to your phone. That's going to send to us in the cloud. So us in real time can make these diagnoses. So instead of having a bad weekend, you can have a bad at bat or a bad day at most. And we can say, call up our clients and consumers and say, hey, you know, when you're successful, you actually do X, Y, and Z, right? You stay inside the baseball. You really work the ball back up through the middle and you really swing hard. Today, your, your bat velocity was down. Um, you didn't really work the middle. We can see that from a steep swing path through the strike zone. Um, it's actually, a, there's a sample on our website over at liquidsportslab.com slash baseball. And, um, and, you know, and you, and so yeah, poor swing speed, poor swing path, and you didn't optimally rotate as when you, you know, when you usually do. So why don't next game you go up there, focus on, take 10 swings where you're focused on staying inside the baseball right before the game. Um, take 10 swings where you're just, you're swinging hard, not worried about the outcome, you know, not scared, not in your own headspace, just swinging hard, increasing the bat velocity. And let's go out there with a different game plan because the other one didn't work. And to be able to make these diagnoses real time, I think is the, the next step in quantitative development for uh, sports biotechnology. Again, I'm going to say this probably a whole bunch of times. That's wild. But it, the other thing you harped on earlier was specifically that communication path from the engineer to the athlete in going into hopefully this new model when it, I don't know if it's already launched, but when, when it's going on and you're actively engaged with athletes explaining what's going on, how do you put it in such a way that they don't get in their own head? Cause I have to imagine as a professional athlete or even a pro-am athlete or an amateur athlete, who's really dedicated to something, it can be easy to get into that headspace and be like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm screwing everything up. Yeah. And a lot of it is just comes down to when you have a large enough sample size on the athlete, you get really good days and really bad days. Mm -hmm. And there are usually, and by usually I mean 99.99999% of the time, there are differences between really, really good days and really, really bad days, assuming the control variables. For example, just to give everyone an indication of control variable, if you're facing an 80 mile per hour fastball, moving at 15 inches of vertical break, 11 inches of horizontal break, one day versus the next. So we've standardized the control. The okay. pitch moves in the exact same way at the exact same speed. One day you had a really good day. One day you had a really bad day. Let's see what the breakdowns are. So let's not even give them an engineering diagnosis. Let's self-empower the players to say, hey, you know what, um, player X, on your really good days against this control variable, this is what you did. And it's not, it's not our words. It's him. It's his own words. It's his own technique. It's his own understanding. So he can think back to that day and say, oh yeah, last Wednesday at Liquid Sports Lab, I had a really good day. Um, and this is how I felt. I, I felt like I was doing these things. So now we're gonna, I'm going to try and recreate it in the game, not through an engineering process, but just a self-reflection to say, this is what I was doing on that day. Here's the data for what I was doing on this day. So you put it in super, super simple graphs and charts for them to read. Not really even numbers, just like swing path inside, swing path outside. You know, and zero, zero is the middle of home plate. Mm -hmm. And maybe one day he was at negative two and the next day he was a positive two. And we literally show him the bat crossing those two areas. Well, every baseball player knows, oh, well, look on the, on the good day. I was at negative two. I was inside home plate. On the bad day, I was at positive two. I was outside home plate. So I'm going to go up there with an approach saying, I just want to stay inside the baseball. Continuing on that, Pat, well, actually, I'll change it a little bit. Do you also take somebody who let's say is an amateur athlete 
who has, when you were talking about force and mass and all that, let's say they've got all the power in the world, but their technique is just garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on your YouTube channel, uh, you you can actually see all or some of the analytics from a pitch being done, which is fascinating. Do you guys also do that, like the opposite? Like, well, you, obviously you don't. You have all the force in the world. You just can't put it over the plate. Here are the things you're doing wrong with with motion or technique or anything like that. Is that also part of the game plan? Yeah. Um. So that's the two the two ways to throw harder. And here's to all the listeners out there that have young kids or or athletes themselves. The two words to be more efficient, more clinical, and have better outcomes doing anything that relates to force. And that is running, jumping, squatting, biking, anything. You can create force and create more force, or you could translate that force better. And in taking everyone through a process of what translating that force better, now that we've covered creating that force, um, we have this theory. It's called, it's a proven theory. So I should stop calling it a theory and start calling it science, um, called the kinetic chain. The kinetic chain simply tells us, okay, when we have, and I'll use a pitcher on the mound because there's a lot of baseball fans out there. Um, when we push down into the mound, so think about when a pitcher breaks his, his hands and his knee starts to go downwards prior to delivering the pitch. Mm-hmm. Well, there are two forces acting upon him, his own mass, his own weight, but also gravity. But that's not the only force we're producing. You know, according to Newton's third law, every action we take has an equal and opposite reaction. So we have that singular anchor point, right? That singular anchor point being that back leg that is creating a force metric, whatever that force metric is. And so beneath our leg, beneath our foot specifically, that equal and opposite force is occurring. So now we have to translate that force into the baseball in order to throw hard. And how we do that is by optimally sequencing our kinetic chain. What that means is when I transfer force, I'm going to give the – the redacted version, just to keep everyone on the same page. Sure. Um, when I'm tr- when I'm transferring force, I want my ankle to reach peak velocity first. Then my knee, then my hip, then my torso, then my shoulder, then my elbow, then the ball. And there's a simple reason as to why. And the reason is, if a object, and I mean a physical object on our body, hasn't reached its peak velocity, well then we're not transferring that peak force to the next joint. That's all it is. In order for my next joint to peak, I need to transfer the energy through the previous joint. And if I accelerate everything at the same time, well, then I'm not transferring all the energy up. I am merely using whatever energy got to trickle up. And I know that's a really tough thing to conceptualize, but that is the theory is basically if we're, you know, I'm going to try and use a visual example, even though it's a podcast. Sure. But basically, if I have my two fists together, right, mm-hmm. and I have a pendulum and that pendulum swings. And hits another ball in the pendulum. Mm-hmm. That ball, that ener- energy is transferred to that other ball. An equal and opposite force. So that ball swings out, comes back, and hits the other ball. And then it comes back, swings back, hits the other ball. But here's the thing. If I don't make this ball go all the way back, and I just make this ball go here, less energy is transferred. Gotcha. For, for, uh, for everyone who's listening, it's, have you ever seen those pendulums that only the end balls move? Like only the end moves and the middle stays still? That's because that, that energy is being transferred through the four points in the middle into the outside. But now if I don't have a, a, a large swing and I'm not creating a lot of momentum, not reaching a- peak angular velocity, although I'm only transferring some of it. I'm not transferring all of it. Right. If I only reach you know, 50 miles per hour, and I, miles per hour isn't a good statistic for it, but it's easier for us to comprehend. If I only go 50 miles an hour and I hit the wall, the wall only experiences 50 miles an hour. Now, if I can go 80 miles an hour and I hit the wall, 
Now, obviously, the wall gets hit at 80 miles an hour. But if I haven't reached 80 miles an hour yet, then I'm only transferring 50. I know that's tough. I know it's really tough to hear. But if you guys look up kinetic chain theory, look up videos in kinetic chain theory, there's a lot of good stuff out there showing you the analysis and sequencing that goes into transferring force between joints. And then when you talk about right hitting peak velocity at all those points at the same time, to me, if I continue with that pendulum theory, if I have only those two balls, mm-hmm. even if I pull the first ball back with all of the force that I can, if the second ball is already moving forward before I make contact, I've lost X amount of, of, of energy, right? Of transfer. Exactly. That's a perfect analogy right there. Gotcha. Um, it makes me feel better that I've explained it at least somewhat well. Yeah, but, you know, you but, did, you did. Yeah, and and, uh, and yeah, no, that's uh, that's exactly that's a great analogy. That's exactly how how it's taken, how we you know take care of it at Liquid Sports Lab. Again, fascinating. But let's move into esports because that was the bigger thing. Again, I know I said it earlier before we got started, but congratulations to you and the team winning that the the pro am. How has all of this knowledge in the baseball world transferred and allowed you to now be successful in the esports world. Well, we basically got it down to one simple point. If we can measure things, then we can make more objective decisions about them. That's exactly what it came down to. If we know how fast our gamers are hitting buttons and how fast our runners are running, well, that's the first step. That lets us say, okay, they go, you know, objectively, they go this fast. No one's mother is going to tell me they're the best and no one's scout is going to tell me he's the best and no one's coach is going to tell me that he's the best. I know where they rank on a scale because I have the data. And esports became the same thing. We went to a private equity meeting in New York City um, and some guy said, hey, you know what? And that guy shall remain nameless. Everyone's doing it for baseball. Baseball is kind of, I wouldn't want to call it a saturated market because um, there's always better tech that can take your place. Sure. But baseball has, you know, has Moneyball. They have a high grossing movie that kind of shows everyone the quantitative aspect of what we're doing and the physical translation on the field. And he said, you know, there's a thing called esports. It compounds at about a 31% rate annually of growth. Um, you know, Zuckerberg's coming up with the metaverse and all this kind of stuff as well. That's going to further facilitate growth. How about you do this for that? And we said, okay, we're going to try. And we went home, sat on it for a couple of days. Um, went into the free agent pool that is the gamer market, sent out a survey with a little plugin, little game, a little reaction time game on the keyboard and said, hey, everyone, um, super interested in all your talents and abilities, going to build a team, going to take them to Dallas, going to put them up in a beautiful mansion, pay all your expenses and try and beat FaZe Clan and 100 Thieves and Fire Sticks Gaming and all these bigger organizations than us that have been here for years and do about a billion dollars and and market cap and stuff like that. And uh, everyone responded. Uh, Everyone as in like 300, 268 people, I believe responded. And uh, then we had the five fastest guys. We actually had the four fastest guys. And then one guy I took simply from a stability perspective, he had played in the professional NBA 2K league, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of like the pinnacle of the the gaming equivalent of a, of a professional sport. And, um, he was kind of like my brains in the matter where he could kind of calm down some of the kids because what ultimately ended up happening is uh, four 17-year-olds – oh, no, I'm sorry. Three 17-year-olds and one 21-year-old were the fastest times. And um, hilarious, but not that uh, hilarious because I did then talk to their parents about taking them as almost like a babysitter down to <laughs> Dallas. But um, – and that's a tough conversation to have with someone. But 
not that surprising because I mean, you can see the same thing happen in sports. Like if you look at F1, for example, uh, the emergence of Max Verstappen and Lando Norris. Well, guess what guys, younger guys have faster reaction times. Right. And that's why they're really good at what they do. Cause all that matters in this game is having a faster reaction time. So took them, we, you know, we trained them up for six weeks using remote procedure, uh, modded controllers, um, little games they can play on their laptop. It was almost like a nine to five job for them. Paid them, you know, $600 weekly. So they could actually be compensated for their time. Their parents were enthralled. You know, they, they're like, Hey, you know what? Little Johnny's making, uh, making some money playing the video game. Finally. Right. Right. And, and then we flew them to Dallas, um, as the, I guess, you know, that time a very slept on team, but no one really knew who was walked in the door and I thought, and hand to God, I was like, okay, we got two wins in us. I think we'll upset a team because we trained really hard. We trained objectively. But there's no way. Like, it's just too big of a dream to dream. And, um, you know, we went to the Sweet 16 and we won. And I was like, wow, amazing. You know, I'm not even going to come here with the quarter crop finals. We're playing, uh, you know, five or six gaming. They're a very good, very proven team. You know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 Twitter followers. Check marks on Twitter. Guys playing professionally. Making millions and millions of dollars. So I actually left. I said, uh, I can't watch this. This is my baby. I can't watch it. My assistant coach calls me and he goes, Roy, we won. And I was in Arlington and I was like, okay, we're driving back to Dallas. Um, get back in with the quarterfinals and then we somehow win again. And then we go to semifinals and we win again. And now we're in the finals with the broadcast team. And there's a, there's a famous clip um, that's now on my Instagram that says, liquid pro-am world champions. I can't believe it. And that's the first thing that they said out of their mouths. And I couldn't believe it either. Are you kidding right. me? I'm the guy who built the thing and I couldn't believe it. And, um, and basically long story short, we go up there on stage in front of the, all the bright lights. And at this point, Twitter is, 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 is losing their mind. I'm getting tagged on Twitter. This guy's a mad scientist. What is he doing? He's 20, I was 21 years old at the time. Um, you know, there's no way this is worth. This is a fluke. They're not going to win in the finals. And I was like, yeah, I'd be mean, like, they're probably right. But right. they weren't. And we went out there and we beat, um, you know, uh, GNA 2K, um, 2-1, Generation Next Academy, which even with that name, you can already tell that is the ascension to the throne that guys take sure. in order to make the 2K lead, Generation Next. And um, we go out there and we win. And we go out there and we win, you know, $30,000 for this team that we had slapped together. And now I call it slapping together because we worked really hard on it. My team worked really hard on it. But we had been a team for like three months and teams had been teams for five years. And using some of these data models, we were able to get things like chemistry up and running because we're like, hey, guys, these plays work and these plays don't. And here's the data. Um, for- and training these guys to hit buttons faster, obviously increasing their reaction time, which right. makes them better at the game. And we go out there and, you know, we leave $30,000 richer. And uh, I should say like $25,000 richer because you don't throw a massive party. At that time, I tried, decided to condone the immature 21-year-old, uh, the rhetoric. And I said, okay, let's go rent a mansion and throw an absolute, absolute great party to celebrate this. If you, you know, if, you're, if you're, they're going to keep saying it, I might as well buy into it, you know? so I'm um, sure the party was an absolute banger. <laughs> but when we talk about the plays themselves, so that's another thing that people talk about when it comes to analytics and sports. Although I feel like when you're talking about baseball or football or, or uh, live action sports, I'll call it for for this to quantify that i feel like is much harder because obviously the human body is just an insane thing whereas in the esports world when you're talking about plays 
you literally have stats for each player, whether they be strengths or shooting accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. Does that factor into how you guys look at plays and quantify which ones work and which ones don't? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. Is uh, You have traditional basketball shooting percentages like player efficiency rating, um, just true shooting percentage, stuff like that. And then we also have stuff like we can get the feedback from the controller. So we have our, our real basketball variables, correct. Um, and then we also have our, our you know, I want to call our gamer basketball variables, just how fast these guys are shooting the ball. We also have data on, for example, they use players' jump shots. Um, as in real players come into 2K and they go through an animation capture. And those animations are the same animations my players use. So we have a statistical modeling for, for example, which animations have the highest green window. Green window means perfect release. Perfect okay. release is guaranteed to go in. So everyone just kind of slaps one on their player and says, hey, this one feels great. You know, I can, I really feel like this animation is the thing that's helping me press square better. You know, it's just, it's just me. Well, we went in and statistically tested the green window. And the green window, once again, is the perfect rating window for all of these animations. So even if it looked horrendous, even if they look like Duckworth shooting a shot, um, sure. you know what I mean? Or, or they looked like you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from the three-point line skyhooking. Right. Even if they looked like that, because um, those were animations in the game, even if it looked like that, we didn't care because all that mattered was the green window. If we had a large green window and we could train our players to hit inside this large window, let go square in this large window every single time, well guess what? We made more shots. And the thing, and this is the number one line in Moneyball, right? I'm not trying to buy wins. I'm trying to buy runs. Runs mm -hmm. buy wins. Yeah. And it's the same thing. I wasn't trying to buy wins. Try to buy baskets. And getting a, a meter in a green window buys baskets, which translates to wins. Um, and that's kind of the process back end to front end for how we did it. Um, and yeah, we kind of transformed that space. Uh, where now every single team has a coach, an analyst, a GM, and a and a, you know like a weather fork man and uh, and everything, just right. anyone that could tell them anything. Uh, we really transferred in that face, and that was that was nice. It was uh, it was good. It was like the little engine that could. It was a crazy, crazy, crazy week, crazy, crazy, crazy month. And uh, I remember walking off that stage, and I I was like, oh, I had my. So we have like chief engineers that'll speak to me through a headset, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and we won. And I'm losing my mind up there. I'm like, oh my God, we won. And I'll never forget this. As one of my engineers, and he was in my headset. Um, and I was the coach. I was back there. I had my laptop out calling all these statistical frequency plays. And everyone went quiet in the office for about three seconds. And you could hear a pin drop. And he said, did we just fucking do that? And then they all <laughs> erupted. All erupted. This little team, yeah. uh, this little six-person team from Rochester, New York, went in and uh, just wiped the floor with uh, some of these like catalysts of the metaverse. And uh, you don't get to see that too much anymore with you know conglomerates, monopolies, and funding and all that kind of stuff. So it was a Cinderella story, man, and it really felt good to be a part of it. And uh, you know, I'm really grateful to my engineers, my team at Liquid Sports Lab, and the players, man, that really bought into the process because there was no guarantee it was going to work. I mean, let's be honest here; no one had done something. So uh, to all you guys, man, that victory is more on you than me. I was the snake oil salesman um, for a little bit. And <laughs> the guys that believed in me will always be the guys that deserve the most praise in this situation. So to all my guys, man, that took a chance on me and, and came out a lot of money richer, you know, we're going to go do it again in Vegas now. So uh, 
secret's kind of out though but let's see if we can do it again in vegas that'd be fun um, that, yeah that so for the guys that was uh spam johnny zay king and dietrich right that yep. was the, the crew yep that was uh and i'll and i'll uh, you know say all their their real names because once again we go by stage names so it's uh, spam is ryan harris uh johnny's mason bracken zay is just say um uh matt hoffman is um king peroxide and dietrich is deondrick leon and uh every single one of those guys man you guys are family for life uh we did something amazing. We did something unstoppable, uh, and no one can ever take that away from us. So um, it was amazing. It's an amazing feeling, and, uh, and Lord, Lord knows too. I was going through like Liquid was going through like not reshuffling, but uh, you know, you, you doubt yourself as a 22 year old a lot, saying, uh, I'm, "Is what I'm doing really working?" Um, you know, I can't, uh, I can't do normal 22 year old things. I mean, I, you know, I go have a beer at the bar, and I get, uh, you know, Harris Rubenstein, who's a great reporter over at Dimer Magazine, but. Uh, I get, uh, he's a little immature. He's, uh, you know, he's 22 years old. He's a little immature. And that came out on, uh, came out on Twitch on, on, uh, on the sports Dean channel. And like, it, it, it gets, you know, it gets taxing sometimes to, you know, just sit at home and be like, Oh wow. Like, are they right? And, uh, like I said, like, um, there are these moments in tech in life and anything that you get to sit back and say, Oh my God, like, I'm, I, I did it. Like we did it. Like this is something that we have built and this, this is never going to go away. And, and everyone that ever said anything about it, I mean, has to eat a little bit of humble pie. Yes. And yes, that motivates me a little bit, but more than anything, like all those hours you spend in a lab, you know, after 1am trying to figure out some statistical method to give you an advantage. Um, it's working and, uh, it really keeps you from having like girlfriends and, uh, you know, a ton of friends and, can't social go out every Friday. And- yeah. And, and I'm very lucky. I have a great social life. I always make time for that. But, uh, you know, you don't get to do a lot of things that you want to do. Uh, you're always traveling. And these all sound like great things. I sound like the most spoiled person in the entire world. But I, it gets lonely, man, doing this day in, day out. And uh, when you're not seeing success, just like anything in life, you see peaks and valleys, right? So mm-hmm. when you're not seeing success, like trusting the processes, it gets even harder. So that was a time where I was like, we need to win to prove yeah. something. And we did. And that was, uh, that was amazing. So for that, when you talk about those peaks and valleys, those ebbs and flows, you know, you talk about briefly, you're like, oh, I sound so spoiled, but I don't think people realize the amount of, of sacrifice that's required in order to dig down to this level of, of analytics and trying to problem solve it at, at this level. How do you maintain right? Going through those peaks and valleys. Like I, I, again, I imagine that one of the valleys is, you know, guessing whether or not you putting all this money into a pro-am team, is it going to work? Is, is my process going to prove out? And then when it does, you're on the highest of highs, there's got to be some sort of way that you keep level headed to some degree. What is that? And what is that process for you? I am a big believer that if you want to be the best at anything in this life, um, you have you have to do something just like and it sounds cliche but just lights your soul on fire um you have to go to bed thinking about that problem and wake up thinking about that problem and i believe in a work-life balance don't get me wrong um but at the same time like if you're not doing something that i wouldn't even say necessarily that you love but just that you're passionate about i don't think you could be the best at it and uh in in, in those, you know, managing those ebbs and flows, um, I always remember on my, when I'm on the peaks, I say, yeah, this is the peak. This is amazing. This is awesome. It's always going to be like this. And I say the same thing when I'm, when I'm at the lows, but more than anything, um, you know, I saw something the other day that was like 70% of Americans don't enjoy what they do. 
and I love what I do. And, um, and like I said, I have the greatest, you know, emotional and physical support system in the world with all my friends at, at college, my family. Um, like I could not be a luckier guy. Um, I think that really sets the stage for it. I'm extremely privileged. My parents did everything in their power to be able to raise me the right way. I've been surrounded by influential and exceptional people um, during my time in college and my various trips um, and, and, and conferences and events and all that kind of stuff. Like I truly believe I'm the luckiest 22 year old in the world, but um, you just, you just gotta love it. Um, and that's kind of how I live my life. It's not just the company is like, you have to be extremely passionate about wh- whether it's work or a, a relationship or something like that. Like you have to be willing to say, I am not doing this for an outcome. I am doing this because I want to do this. And whatever happens at the end of the day, I will go to sleep at night knowing that I did things the right way. Mm. Um, and if it doesn't work out, fine. I'm okay with that. I don't, you know, I'm not in it for the money or the fame or anything like that. Um, I'm in it because I think I have something that works that I truly enjoy doing every single day that can maybe help the next kid that tears his UCL coming out of high school. Yeah, That's why I do it. And so whether or not I have a good day or a bad day, I still think I'm contributing to this overlying system of getting closer to the answer, whatever that answer is. And if it's not me that comes up with it, well, it sucks. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll cry about it for sure. But I, I just love what I do. And, uh, and I, I think I can be the best at it. And if I didn't do those things, I wouldn't have started my own company. So no matter how high I get, uh, you know, in terms of accolades and fame and wealth or how low, you know, we get in terms of financials and accolades of growth. Yeah. Um, I'll always remember there's a why. And I think this is a great full circle where I started this company because I used to ask why. And I didn't get an answer. But I know for me, there's a why as to why I do this. I do because I'm super passionate about it when I'm, you know, um, you know, like doing anything when I'm playing baseball, um, when I'm, you know, building a company, when I'm running my fraternity, when I'm the, the head of various societies, when I'm leading whatever, whatever reform movement or organization that I've been so lucky to have been, have elected to be able to lead, I'm going to do that to the best of my ability, no matter what, even if it takes me out. Even if it requires me making some ugly decisions that I have to, you know, pour more money into it, my own personal money into it, all that kind of stuff. Because I know at the end of the day, if I do things the right way, I am going to be okay. Um, And not from a financial perspective, just I'm going to be okay where I'm going to say I did things the right way. And there's no ghost haunting me saying that you could have done things different. You know how many guys could have gone pro if they didn't hurt their knee? I don't want to be one of those guys. (laughs) The reason I don't want to succeed is because I wasn't good enough. I'm okay with not being good enough. Um, I'm not okay wondering what if. Man, think about that, right? Being okay with not being good enough is something that I feel like that 70% number you threw out there is probably similar, right? How many people Mm -hmm. out there are just like, I don't know. I don't want to be that guy that didn't make it. Mm -hmm. But it seems more often than not, the guys that take that chance, that take that opportunity, and even if it translates into failure, even when I meet those guys, they're like, yeah, but I did it. I tried it. Now I know. I feel better because I did. Sure, I wanted to succeed, but I did it. Is and there some the sort of like gratification to to achieving that? And, and right, with even yeah. with Liquid, I'm sure not everything was hunky-dory. There's probably times where you were looking around like, shit, what am I doing? D- dude, I have had times where I went, holy fucking hell, I don't know what's going to happen next. 
Um, and, uh, and that's a scary feeling to have as a CEO. I've had days where we've lost, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars because of decisions that I made and, uh, and it's, you know, negatively. And it wasn't always like that. I mean, I had, uh, you know, I had, um, situations where I didn't necessarily handle it the right way. I didn't handle the stress the right way. I think I have failed over and over and over and over again. So many times over this last year, I have made the wrong decision. I have not done something to the best of my ability. I have looked back on something and realized there was a different way to handle it. But I think that is why I was able to be successful in Liquid Pro-Am and some of the new products we're rolling out and all that kind of stuff because it sucks to fail. You, you lie in bed at night and you go, damn, I wish I, you know, I did something a little fucking better. I wish I controlled this process better. But at the end of the day, you learn so much more in failure than you do when you create something that's successful. Um, knowing why, how not to do something is almost more important than knowing how to do something. Because this is all super experimental. There's right. no textbook that tells me how to build this kind of stuff. Um, this is the first generation of guys building the future. And uh, we're not always going to get it right. Honestly, more often than not, we're probably going to get it wrong. Right. But every single time we get it wrong, we're a little bit closer to getting it right, which is the beauty of, of tech. And it's, uh, and you know what, uh, that's, that's tech, but in my personal life as well. I mean, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've, uh, looked back on something with a ton of regret and wished I had, you know, been able to, to give a little more to, you know, various interactions and relationships and all that kind of stuff. Right. Where, where I was like, Hey, I, uh, I should have given a little more, but I know the next one, the next time I, I'm, you know, in that same situation, I'm going to learn from it. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying, you either win or you learn. And I think I subscribe to it more than anyone because uh, you have to. If you yeah. fold at the sight of inconvenience, you're never going to survive. Um, it's, you know, another Moneyball quote, adapt or die. That's adapt it. or die. Well, yeah. Roy, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate everything. I hope nothing but the best for you. I know I will continue to follow not just the esports, but hopefully I'll start hearing more about liquid sports when it comes to major league teams. Although I do feel like, and I could be wrong, that the application for what you've done with that with that pro am team for NBA two K has implications that are probably far more reaching than I even realize, especially yeah. in the esports world because it's massive. Yeah, but. Best of luck to you. Best of luck to Liquid Sports as well as the team. I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Uh, I will say we we have we have worked with three MLB teams. Got to keep them under the NDAs, but uh, yeah, it's it's exciting to watch this thing take root. At the end of the day, it's like I said before, if you're just passionate about something and it, it starts working out, um, all those hours that you spend just grinding it out and you know where you could be doing something else, it, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful beautiful thing to see. So I'm super excited. Not sure what exactly the future holds, sure. but I am super excited for it. And I think uh, not knowing is the super exciting part as well. So, uh, like I said, man, I appreciate you, Caleb, so much for having me on the podcast. I'll definitely be checking in. I appreciate it. Thank you again, man.